Section 1 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1F, Section 1, Chapter 63, Part 1. Chapter 63, Charles II, 1660. Charles II, when he ascended the throne of his ancestors, was thirty years of age. He possessed a vigorous constitution, a fine shape, a manly figure, a graceful air, and though his features were harsh, yet was his countenance in the main lively and engaging. He was in that period of life when there remains enough of youth to render the person amiable, without preventing that authority and regard which attend the years of experience and maturity. Tenderness was excited by the memory of his recent adversities. His present prosperity was the object rather of admiration than of envy. And as the sudden and surprising revolution which restored him to his regal rights had also restored the nation to peace, law, order, and liberty, no prince ever obtained a crown in more favorable circumstances, or was more blessed with the cordial affection and attachment of his subjects. This popularity the king, by his whole demeanor and behavior, was well qualified to support and to increase. To a lively wit and quick comprehension, he united a just understanding and a general observation both of men and things. The easiest manners, the most unaffected politeness, the most engaging gaiety accompanied his conversation and address. Accustomed during his exile to live among his courtiers rather like a companion than a monarch, he retained even while on the throne that open affability which was capable of reconciling the most determined republicans to his royal dignity, totally devoid of resentment as well as from the natural lenity as carelessness of his temper, he ensured pardon to the most guilty of his enemies, and left hopes of favor to his most violent opponents. From the whole tenor of his actions and discourse, he seemed desirous of losing the memory of past animosities, and of uniting every party in an affection for their prince and their native country. Into his council were admitted the most eminent men of the nation, without regard to former distinctions. The Presbyterians, equally with the Royalists, shared this honor. Ansley was also created Earl of Anglesey, Ashley Cooper, Lord Ashley, Denzil Hollis, Lord Hollis. The Earl of Manchester was appointed Lord Chamberlain, and Lord Say, Privy Seal. Calamy and Baxter, Presbyterian clergymen, were even made chaplains to the king. Admiral Montague, created Earl of Sandwich, was entitled from his recent services to great favor, and he obtained it. Monk, created Duke of Albemarle, had performed such signal services that, according to a vulgar and malignant observation, he ought rather to have expected hatred and ingratitude, yet he was ever treated by the king with great marks of distinction. Charles's disposition, free from jealousy, and the prudent behavior of the general, who never overrated his merits, prevented all those disgusts which naturally arise in so delicate a situation. The capacity, too, of Albemarle was not extensive, and his parts were more solid than shining. Though he had distinguished himself in inferior stations, he was imagined, upon familiar acquaintance, not to be wholly equal to those great achievements which fortune, united to prudence, had enabled him to perform, and he appeared unfit for the court, a scene of life to which he had never been accustomed. Morris, his friend, was created Secretary of State, 
and was supported more by his patron's credit than by his own abilities or experience. But the choice which the king at first made of his principal ministers and favorites was the circumstance which chiefly gave contentment to the nation and prognosticated future happiness and tranquillity. Sir Edward Hyde, created Earl of Clarendon, was Chancellor and Prime Minister. The Marquis, created Duke of Ormond, was Steward of the House. The Earl of Southampton, High Treasurer. Sir Edward Nicholas, Secretary of State. These men, united together in friendship and combining in the same laudable inclinations, supported each other's credit and pursued the interest of the public. Agreeable to the present prosperity of public affairs was the universal joy and festivity diffused throughout the nation. The melancholy austerity of the fanatics fell into discredit together with their principles. The royalists, who had ever affected a contrary disposition, found in their recent success new motives for mirth and gaiety, and it now belonged to them to give repute and fashion to their manners. From past experience it had sufficiently appeared that gravity was very distinct from wisdom, formality from virtue, and hypocrisy from religion. The king himself, who bore a strong propensity to pleasure, served, by his powerful and engaging example, to banish those sour and malignant humors which had hitherto engendered such confusion. And though the just bounds were undoubtedly passed, when men returned to their former extreme, yet was the public happy in exchanging vices pernicious to society, for disorders hurtful chiefly to the individuals themselves who were guilty of them. It required some time before the several parts of the state, disfigured by war and faction, could recover their former arrangement. But the Parliament immediately fell into good correspondence with the King, and they treated him with the same dutiful regard which had usually been paid to his predecessors. Being summoned without the King's consent, they received at first only the title of a convention, and it was not till he passed an act for that purpose that they were called by the appellation of Parliament. All judicial proceedings, transacted in the name of the Commonwealth or Protector, were ratified by a new law, and both houses, acknowledging the guilt of the former rebellion, gratefully received, in their own name and in that of all the subjects, His Majesty's gracious pardon and indemnity. The king, before his restoration, being afraid of reducing any of his enemies to despair, and at the same time unwilling that such enormous crimes as had been committed should receive a total impunity, had expressed himself very cautiously in his declaration of Breda, and had promised an indemnity to all criminals but such as should be accepted by Parliament. He now issued a proclamation declaring that such of the late king's judges as did not yield themselves prisoners within fourteen days should receive no pardon. Nineteen surrendered themselves. Some were taken in their flight. Others escaped beyond sea. The commons seemed to have been more inclined to lenity than the lords. The upper house, inflamed by the ill usage which they had received, were resolved, besides the late king's judges, to accept every one who had sitten in any high court of justice. Nay, the Earl of Bristol moved that no pardon might be granted to those who had anywise contributed to the king's death. So wide an exception, in which every one who had served the Parliament might be comprehended, gave a general alarm, and men began to apprehend that this motion was the effect of some court artifice or intrigue. But the king soon dissipated these fears. He came to the House of Peers, and in the most earnest terms passed the Act of General Indemnity. 
he urged both the necessity of the thing and the obligation of his former promise a promise he said which he would ever regard as sacred since to it he probably owed the satisfaction which at present he enjoyed of meeting his people in parliament this measure of the king's was received with great applause and satisfaction after repeated solicitations the act of indemnity passed both houses and soon received the royal assent those who had an immediate hand in the late king's death were there accepted even cromwell ireton bradshaw and others now dead were attainted and their estates forfeited vane and lambert though none of the regicides were also accepted st john and seventeen persons more were deprived of all benefit from this act if they ever accepted any public employment all who had sitten in any illegal high court of justice were disabled from bearing offices these were all the severities which followed such furious civil wars and convulsions the next business was the settlement of the king's revenue in this work the parliament had regard to public freedom as well as to the support of the crown the tenures of wards and liveries had long been regarded as a grievous burden by the nobility and gentry several attempts had been made during the reign of james to purchase this prerogative together with that of purveyance and two hundred thousand pounds a year had been offered that prince in lieu of them wardships and purveyance had been utterly abolished by the republican parliament and even in the present parliament before the king arrived in england a bill had been introduced offering him a compensation for the emolument of these prerogatives a hundred thousand pounds a year was the sum agreed to and half of the excise was settled in perpetuity upon the crown as the fund whence this revenue should be levied though that impost yielded more profit the bargain might be esteemed hard and it was chiefly the necessity of the king's situation which induced him to consent to it no request of the parliament during the present joy could be refused them tonnage and poundage and the other half of the excise were granted to the king during life parliament even proceeded so far as to vote that the settled revenue of the crown for all charges should be one million two hundred thousand pounds a year a sum greater than any english monarch had ever before enjoyed but as all the princes of europe were perpetually augmenting their military force and consequently their expense it became requisite that england from motives both of honor and security should bear some proportion to them and adapt its revenue to the new system of politics which prevailed according to the chancellor's computation a charge of eight hundred thousand pounds a year was at present requisite for the fleet and other articles which formerly cost the crown but eighty thousand had the parliament before restoring the king insisted on any further limitations than those which the constitution already imposed besides the danger of reviving former quarrels among parties it would seem that their precaution had been entirely superfluous by reason of its slender and precarious revenue the crown in effect was still totally dependent not a fourth of this sum which seemed requisite for public expenses could be levied without consent of parliament and any concessions had they been thought necessary might even after the restoration be extorted by the commons from their necessitous prince this parliament showed no intention of employing at present that engine to any such purposes but they seemed still determined not to part with it entirely or to render the revenues of the crown fixed and independent though they voted in general that one million two hundred thousand pounds a year should be settled on the king they scarcely assigned any funds which could yield two-thirds of that sum 
and they left the care of fulfilling their engagements to the future consideration of Parliament. In all the temporary supplies which they voted, they discovered the same cautious frugality. To disband the army, so formidable in itself, and so much accustomed to rebellion and changes in government, was necessary for the security both of king and Parliament. Yet the commons showed great jealousy in granting the sums requisite for that end. An assessment of seventy thousand pounds a month was imposed, but it was at first voted to continue only three months, and all the other sums which they levied for that purpose, by a poll bill and new assessments, were still granted by parcels, as if they were not as yet well assured of the fidelity of the hand to which the money was entrusted. Having proceeded so far in the settlement of the nation, the Parliament adjourned itself for some time. During the recess of Parliament, the object which chiefly interested the public was the trial and condemnation of the regicides. The general indignation attending the enormous crime of which these men had been guilty made their sufferings the subject of joy to the people, but in the peculiar circumstances of that action, in the prejudices of the times, as well as in the behavior of the criminals, a mind seasoned with humanity will find a plentiful source of compassion and indulgence. Can any one, without concern for human blindness and ignorance, consider the demeanor of General Harrison, who was first brought to this trial? With great courage and elevation of sentiment, he told the court that the pretended crime of which he stood accused was not a deed performed in a corner. The sound of it had gone forth to most nations, and in the singular and marvelous conduct of it had chiefly appeared the sovereign power of heaven, that he himself, agitated by doubts, had often, with passionate tears, offered up his addresses to the divine majesty, and earnestly sought for light and conviction. He had still received assurance of a heavenly sanction, and returned from these devout supplications with more serene tranquillity and satisfaction, that all the nations of the earth were, in the eyes of their Creator, less than a drop of water in the bucket, nor were their erroneous judgments aught but darkness, compared with divine illuminations, that these frequent relapses of the divine spirit he could not suspect to be interested illusions, since he was conscious that for no temporal advantage would he offer injury to the poorest man or woman that trod upon the earth, that all the allurements of ambition, all the terrors of imprisonment, had not been able, during the usurpation of Cromwell, to shake his steady resolution, or bend him to a compliance with that deceitful tyrant, and that when invited by him to sit on the right hand of the throne, when offered riches and splendor and dominion, he had disdainfully rejected all temptations, and neglecting the tears of his friends and family, had still, through every danger, held fast his principles and his integrity. Scott, who was more a Republican than a fanatic, had said in the House of Commons, a little before the Restoration, that he desired no other epitaph to be inscribed on his tombstone than this, Here lies Thomas Scott, who adjudged the king to death. He supported the same spirit upon his trial. Carew, a millenarian, submitted to his trial, saving to our Lord Jesus Christ his right to the government of these kingdoms. Some scrupled to say, according to form, that they would be tried by God and their country, because God was not visibly present to judge them. Others said that they would be tried by the word of God. No more than six of the late king's judges, Harrison, Scott, Carew, Clements, Jones, and Scroop, were executed. Scroop alone, of all those who came in upon the king's proclamation, 
he was a gentleman of good family and of a decent character but it was proved that he had a little before in conversation expressed himself as if he were nowise convinced of any guilt in condemning the king axtell who had guarded the high court of justice hacker who commanded on the day of the king's execution coke the solicitor for the people of england and hugh peters the fanatical preacher who inflamed the army and impelled them to regicide all these were tried and condemned and suffered with the king's judges no saint or confessor ever went to martyrdom with more assured confidence of heaven than was expressed by those criminals even when the terrors of immediate death joined to many indignities were set before them the rest of the king's judges by an unexampled lenity were reprieved and they were dispersed into several prisons this punishment of declared enemies interrupted not the rejoicings of the court but the death of the duke of gloucester a young prince of promising hopes threw a great cloud upon them the king by no incident in his life was ever so deeply affected gloucester was observed to possess united the good qualities of both his brothers the clear judgment and penetration of the king the industry and application of the duke of york he was also believed to be affectionate to the religion and constitution of his country he was but twenty years of age when the smallpox put an end to his life the princess of orange having come to england in order to partake of the joy attending the restoration of her family with whom she lived in great friendship soon after sickened and died the queen-mother paid a visit to her son and obtained his consent to the marriage of the princess henrietta with the duke of orleans brother to the french king after a recess of near two months the parliament met and proceeded in the great work of the national settlement they established the post-office wine licenses and some articles of the revenue they granted more assessments and some arrears for paying and disbanding the army business being carried on with great unanimity was soon dispatched and after they had sitten near two months the king in a speech full of the most gracious expressions thought proper to dissolve them this house of commons had been chosen during the reign of the old parliamentary party and though many royalists had crept in amongst them yet did it chiefly consist of presbyterians who had not yet entirely laid aside their old jealousies and principles lenthal a member having said that those who first took arms against the king were as guilty as those who afterwards brought him to the scaffold was severely reprimanded by order of the house and the most violent efforts of the long parliament to secure the constitution and bring delinquents to justice were in effect vindicated and applauded the claim of the two houses to the militia the first ground of the quarrel however exorbitant a usurpation was never expressly resigned by this parliament they made all grants of money with a very sparing hand great arrears being due by the protectors to the fleet the army the navy office and every branch of service this whole debt they threw upon the crown without establishing funds sufficient for its payment yet notwithstanding this jealous care expressed by the parliament there prevails a story that pompum having sounded the disposition of the members undertook to the earl of southampton to procure during the king's life a grant of two millions a year land tax a sum which added to the customs and excise would for ever have rendered this prince independent of his people southampton it is said merely from his affection to the king had unwarily embraced the offer and it was not till he communicated the matter to the chancellor that he was made sensible of its pernicious tendency 
it is nor improbable that such an offer might have been made and been hearkened to but it was nowise probable that all the interest of the court would ever with this house of commons have been able to make it effectual clarendon showed his prudence no less than his integrity in entirely rejecting it the chancellor from the same principles of conduct hastened to disband the army when the king reviewed these veteran troops he was struck with their beauty order discipline and martial appearance and being sensible that regular forces are most necessary implements of royalty he expressed a desire of finding expedients still to retain them but his wise ministers set before him the dangerous spirit by which these troops were actuated their enthusiastic genius their habits of rebellion and mutiny and he convinced the king that till they were disbanded he never could esteem himself securely established on his throne no more troops were retained than a few guards and garrisons about one thousand horse and four thousand foot this was the first appearance under the monarchy of a regular standing army in this island lord mordaunt said that the king being possessed of that force might now look upon himself as the most considerable gentleman in england the fortifications of gloucester taunton and other towns which had made resistance to the king during the civil wars were demolished end of section one chapter sixty three part one recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n dot i can voice dot com